Welcome to the Armani Talk Show, episode 10. It's November, November 1st to be exact, and already 10 episodes of the Armani Talk Show. Uh, when I started this uh, series, it was something that I just had the idea of uh, ever since starting the Unapologetic Truths series that I co-host with my uh, co-host, Life Math Money. And for both of these long-form podcasts, I've noticed something. Some of the best ideas come when you are least expecting it. Uh, for the Unapologetic Truths podcast, for those of you who listen to that, there was this one day when I was reaching out to this other gentleman who was Anon. Uh, more specifically, he was anonymous. And we were chit-chatting in the DMs. He asked me to do a guest blog for his website. And I thought I would go ahead and ask him to be a guest on my podcast. Around that time, though, I didn't think that he was going to say yes uh, to my offer because he was anonymous. At that point, he was pretty much writing through text, but no one knew what he looked like or what his voice sounded like. I gave him uh, the guest blog uh, where I talk about storytelling. And I said, just so you know, the offer is there. If you ever want to come on the Armani Talks podcast, you're more than welcome to. And roughly a year goes on by. I still don't think that he's going to do the podcast. I thought it was just a formality. But on one particular day, he hits me up and he says, Armani, I will like to accept the podcast invite that you gave me. As soon as he said that, I thought, this guy is joking around. But he wasn't. I asked him when uh, he was free. He told me. And we recorded a two-hour podcast for our first ever podcast together. And it was a hit. We had roughly around 5,000 views on the first day. And people were amazed to hear Life Math Money's voice. I mean, he is a great speaker. He's very persuasive. And he's smart. And I thought that was the end of that. I thought, okay, well, great interview. And we'll hopefully do this again in the future. And he said, let's do it again in the future. Roughly six months passes on by, and that's when I hit him up this time, and I'm like, round two? And he said, I'm ready. So we do a round two episode, and just like that, it was a hit. And this is when Life Math Money had the idea. He said, we should do these monthly. I thought, monthly? I don't know if I could do it monthly, because these episodes are roughly one hour to two hours long. But he said, I think we can do it. Me and you have really great chemistry. Let's go for it. So the next month, we released episode three. And then the month after that, we released episode four. And just like that, the Unapologetic Truths podcast was born. And that's when I thought, huh, that's a great uh, way to speak for a very long period of time and get these ideas uh, when you're speaking with a, f a friend, at least, you get a lot of these ideas that you're not initially considering. How about I also do one where I host it by myself? And when I can host it by myself, I'll get a lot of these ideas that I wouldn't get when I am um, with someone else or when I'm planning it out. And that is when the Armani Talks show idea was born. And I decided, you know, let me just release one per month. 
And at this point, I'm on episode 10, but I thought it is important to share how certain shows began because many times when someone is, uh, let's say they're struggling with analysis paralysis, they're thinking that a lot of plans are needed. If you go get your MBA degree, you hear a lot about business plans. You need to have a mission statement, action items, the key vision, all that stuff. But in the real world, a lot of these podcasts, a lot of these shows that get started by uh, two groups or more people, it's simply an idea and uh, a handshake. Do you trust this person? Because the person that you're going to be working with, you're going to be spending a lot of time with during certain zones. The cool thing with myself and Life Mad Money is that we live in completely different parts of the world. I'm from the West Coast. He's from the East Coast. So other than recording these episodes, we're not really seeing each other all the time. And I think that's a good thing. When you're seeing your co-host a little too much, that's when you see a lot of friction happen quicker. So having these boundaries is a good thing. But the more important thing to ask yourself is, do I trust this person? Is there good chemistry with this person? And this brings me to the question of what exactly is chemistry? Uh, this is one of those phrases that a lot of people use willy-nilly in terms of dating or in terms of podcast partnerships. Uh, these two co-hosts, they have amazing chemistry. Uh, this new couple, they got amazing chemistry. What does it mean to have amazing chemistry? I view it like this. It's different for business relationships versus relationship relationships. For business relationships, I would say when you two are mentally aligned. For relationships relationships, I would say when you two are mentally and physically aligned. So for the podcast partnership, me and Life Math Money, we're both within the self-improvement space. We're both around the same age. We have a lot of similar ideas. And also, we're different in many ways. So due to us having respect for one another, even if we're disagreeing on a certain idea, it never gets to the point of disrespect. So in this situation, we are mentally aligned with one another, and this leads to great chemistry. But with relationships, it cannot just be mental uh, aspect and that's it. For relationships, you need that physical chemistry as well. And this is something that some people don't uh, like to speak about because they think it's a little judgmental. It's like, wait a minute, man. What's wrong with uh, the other person if you guys get along, you guys have a great conversation topics with one another, but you just don't find the person physically attractive? I mean, you could still give them a chance. And I would say I don't buy that. I, I think you need to be somewhat physically attracted to the person as well, or there's potential to have physical attraction uh, to the person. But if you don't see any chance of you ever being physically attracted to the person, I think you still can make it work. I've seen a lot of couples, um, long-lasting couples, by the way, where one par party does not find the other party physically uh, attractive, still they're capable of making it work. Um, but I'm just not bullish on that concept. I believe with relationship aspects, the chemistry variables are two, not one. It's not just the mental aspect. It's the physical aspect as well. And this is something that people can work on. Uh, I find it uh, sad. 
that a lot of individuals give up a little too quick when it comes down to uh, their physical appearance. And many people don't know the difference between uh, attractive and handsome or attractive and beautiful um, or uh, any of these concepts. They just think you're either good looking or not. There are a lot of things that are within our control. A few things that are within our control are we fat? Are we in shape? Are we a little too skinny? This is purely in our control. And there's no reason to sugarcoat it. Um, I've seen uh, some people that like, they'll get fat, then they'll play it off in a certain way where they're not fat. They'll write chubby and cute. I'm like, only half of that statement is right, my friend. Uh, you're just chubby. I don't know about the cute aspect. But they'll try to play it off like this is something that the other person should accept. Why not just go to the gym? Why not just work out? Another aspect is the fashion, right? With fashion, women take this very seriously, but guys, they often undermine its importance. They're like, fashion? Come on, man. I mean, I got serious things to worry about. But the thing is, human beings, they process so much information with their eyes that you need to have a certain consideration in regards to fashion. And I've spoken about this in detail before, so I'm not going to go through all the uh, aspects. But it's really easy if you're a guy. You just get in shape and you wear clothes that fit. And more specifically, you wear clothes that fit that you could see yourself wearing 50 years from now. That helps you out. And it uh, it prevents you from falling within the trap of a lot of these uh, fashion companies that are trying to sell you on the latest trends. Can you wear the clothes 50 years from now? Good. Buy it. Uh, the quality is good? Great. Now, you're improving your perception in many ways, and this is building on the attractiveness. Where handsome and beautiful, these are more um, these are more stuff that you're born with. For example, if you're a guy that's six foot, foot four, immediately you're going to get a lot of people that are interested in you just because of your height. But you didn't do anything to earn that height. Uh, similarly, if you have a very pretty face, if you have a pretty face, good for you, but you didn't do anything to earn it. So stuff that you don't um, have to do anything to earn, that's what I would say is um, the physical aspects. It's the being handsome, it's being beautiful. But when you're attractive, these are things that you have to earn. I mean, if you have a great personality, you can move mountains. A lot of individuals are stressed nowadays. And due to being stressed, they love to chill with people that are fun, that know how to crack jokes, that know how to tell stories uh, that are engaging. And your personality can easily make you attractive. I know a guy who looks like, I call him the Indian Harry Potter. And I I'm serious. He legitimately looks like Harry Potter if he was Indian. And the guy is not the best looking guy. Uh, but he has a lot of confidence. He's one of those guys that uh, can crack jokes. He could build rapport with individuals. He'll introduce different groups of people. See, this is important, introducing groups of people. How often do you see where, let's say you're walking with a buddy in the mall and your buddy runs into someone that you don't know and your buddy and this new person they're just talking for a long time while you're just standing there. Your friend doesn't even take the time to introduce you to the other person. 
And if they do introduce you, it's what I call a subpar introduction. They'll just say your name and that's it. Now, a lot of people may think, what's wrong with that? That's how I introduce people. That's not how you're supposed to introduce. You're supposed to say their name and then integrate them into the conversation. If you don't put them into the conversation, now you're actually doing more harm than good by just saying their name. Because if you just say their name, like, hey, this is Paul, and now you're making both people feel awkward. Or the new person that you just met is like, well, hey, Paul. And Paul says, hey, back. But there's no connection. Uh, there's no conversation material that you have presented. When you're making the introduction, you, in this interaction, have taken up the role as the glue guy. Therefore, be the glue guy. Glue them together. Hey, uh, this is my friend Paul. Paul, this is Jacob. Hey, I don't know if you guys know this, but both of you guys have worked in Jable before. Jable is an engineering firm. Uh, so I just thought that was really um, random. And now these two, they have a conversation point that they can bridge off one another, and then you can strategically insert yourself in. This is how you make smart introductions. And if you're a very socially awkward person, one thing you need to understand is that you could do a lot of things wrong, but if you can listen appropriately and make someone money, you're doing a lot of things right. People will completely overlook how awkward you are if you can listen appropriately and you make people money. And guess what? When you introduce people by listening effectively, you suddenly become very high social value in their eyes. One of my former clients, he is a very, very, very smart man, um, very introverted. So at first glance, if you're meeting him for the first time, you would think that he's a little awkward, um, socially awkward at least. But here's the unique thing with him. He's a boss. Uh, he has a lot of employees that work for him, and he's one of the head honchos within his market. After me and him were done with our sessions, I said, all right, my friend, I wish you the best and um, take care. Oh, by the way, if you ever have any referrals that you believe can uh, improve their communication skills in front of the camera, in front of an audience, uh, feel free to refer me. And this guy just nods his head like, mm-hmm. I feel like he didn't even listen to me. A couple of months goes on by, two months. And then I get um, an email. Uh, and it's an email from my former client. And it's tagging someone else. And my uh, former client is like, hey, so Armani is the guy that I've been telling you about. He's the guy that gave me so much confidence to speak in front of the camera. I feel like you two can work well together. This is what I call a beautiful introduction. Because what happens is that he already hyped me up. This is what I call the introduction before the introduction. So he was hyping me up behind the scenes and whatever, like a networking event or something. And then he made the introduction to me. Uh, so I'm talking to this new guy, this new referral. And normally it takes me roughly three to four calls to close someone because my packages are more expensive. But for this guy, I was able to close them in one interaction. That's simply because my former client gave me a beautiful introduction. So just like that, I viewed this guy, my former client, as charismatic at this point. He's no longer socially awkward. He's charismatic because he listened appropriately to the services that I offer, and 
He just made me money. It doesn't matter if you're socially awkward. You got to listen appropriately and you got to refer people the correct way. Referring people is a lot like recommending a book to someone. If you're uh, recommending a book to someone and you're like, hey, I should, uh, you should definitely read this book. And they ask you why. And you say, I don't know. It's because I like the book. Do you think this other person is going to read the book? No. It's because they don't know what's in it for them. But if you say, hey, bro, I believe you should read this book because you're starting a business and you said one thing you were struggling with right now was content marketing, right? Well, this book, it discusses content marketing to the T. Here you go. Just like that, you have uh, done something that's favorable for this person because it deals with their life. Same thing with introductions. If you're like, hey, uh, Jacob, I believe you should meet Mike. Jacob's like, why? You're like, I don't know. It's because I like Mike. Jacob's going to be like, what the heck? I'm busy. I don't have time for that. But if you say, hey, Jacob, you were having car troubles recently, right? Well, Mike, he just fixed my car recently. How about you have a conversation with him? And you don't just leave it at that. You uh, create a group chat or a group email and you introduce both parties. This is how you become a great connector. If you want to read a good book on this, uh, I believe it's called The Power Connector. Uh, and I believe the author's name is Judy Robonet. Uh, don't quote me on the author's name, but the, I know the book's name is The Power Connector. And it just teaches you that you could provide so much value to people by just knowing people, uh, listening to them, and then referring them to one another. And you are becoming this power connector, the guy that knows how to make amazing introductions. Do not sleep on the introduction. Because this is a very easy way for uh, you to either build likability or for you to lose likability. Because I recall there was this one time when one of my good friends, he was just like, hey, bro, uh, you want to come to my place and play video games? I'm like, nah, I don't really play video games like that, but I guess we could just uh, chill if you're down to chill. And he's like, yeah, let's do that. So I go to this place. Um, we're chilling. We're talking. We're talking for roughly like, 30 minutes to an hour, and it's getting pretty pretty deep. And then suddenly, one of his friends comes in, and the person that comes in, I don't know who he is. And my friend is pretty much just talking to this new guy uh, the entire time, and I'm just sitting there. Every now and then, I'm trying to like force myself into the conversation, and they're looking at me like, uh-huh, uh-huh. Then they go back to talking to each other. And this is when I don't really care about the new guy that just came in because I don't know you like that. But I looked at this friend differently. I'm like, man, bro, it's as though you didn't have my back. And this is something that you really need to be wary of. You don't want people to just uh, be hanging idle when they're chilling with you. You want to be that person that's integrating other people into the conversation. See, this is why I believe it's really smart to be a... um. Be awkward in a couple of stages in your life because if you were awkward in a couple of stages in your life, then you know the pain that I'm talking about. Uh, you know how annoying it is when you're over here um, ready to hang out with someone and they're just ignoring you or, or they're just uh, leaving you for someone else and you're just standing there with your uh, hands in your pockets and you don't know what to do. You feel that pain or you have felt it before and you know. I'm not going to put someone else through that same situation. So a lot of awkward people, shy people, 
are sometimes the most charismatic for that particular reason. They have felt pain before. And one of the toughest pain to feel is to feel ostracized from your crew, right? Um, when I was a youngster, I recall I used to um, sit by myself in the bus a lot. And I actually liked this. I liked um, listening to music. This is when the iPod was just coming out. And I liked it when I was just listening to music and doing my own thing. But I recall there was a certain period where they mashed up two schools, two different schools, by the way, into the same bus. So it was Forest Hill High School. This is the high school, uh, my high school, and Park Vista High School. And we both took the same exact bus. So this bus was packed and you had to struggle to find uh, seats. I recall there was this one time where I was sitting by myself listening to music and I just recall people struggling to find seats. But for me, my seat was empty because if you've uh, never been in a bus, one seat can fit three people. So I was sitting by the windows and uh, there were two seats empty next to me. And so many people just kept walking past me and uh, sitting with people that had already two seats. Uh, or some people, like the seats were entirely full and uh, someone will be like, hey, can I sit on your lap? And that's when I felt a certain type of way. I'm like, how come no one wants to sit with me? Uh, there, there's so much room here. And you guys want to sit with somewhere it's already packed? Come on, guys. And that's when I felt a little ostracized. I thought, man, I'm like, I'm the only guy in the bus right now who's sitting by himself. And that's when I took the headphones out and I thought, wait a minute, this is not a good situation to be in. So whenever you're someone that is um, um, ostracized from a group, whether it's childhood or whether it's adulthood, you'll be surprised how many times people are ostracized, especially in adulthood. I actually uh, saw this many times at work. Whenever you're at work, and this is a good way to build charisma, by the way, and you see someone consistently eating by themselves, sometimes they like eating by themselves. They're a lot like me in the school bus as a little kid who's listening to music. When they're eating by themselves in their cube, this is their free time. They do not want to be disturbed. But understand this. Even people that are just chilling by themselves that don't want to be disturbed, still want to be extended the invitation every now and then, right? So I liked it when I was in the school bus, and every now and then, some of the kids from the back would be like, Yo, Armani, come sit with us. I'm like, nah, man, I'm listening to some music right now. I'm doing my own thing. But I felt good that they invited me at all. It's a problem when they don't invite me at all. They just walk past me and act like I don't exist. So for you to build charisma, uh, every now and then, you want to invite people like this to your... Uh, lunch parties. Yo, uh, Glenn, you're sitting by yourself. Uh, I just wanted you to know that we're going to go to an Indian place uh, today. You want to come with? And Glenn will play hard to get. He'll be like, no, no, I bought food already. All right, Glenn, but trust me, the Indian food is really good. It's really spicy. I don't know if you could handle spicy like that. Glenn's like, well, no. I mean, from my household, I can eat the spiciest. Like, but yeah, man, it's from your household. You haven't been in a brown household yet. C come with us, man. L let's see how spicy you can eat. And just by extending the invitation, you have built a social ally. Okay? Th these are very sneaky ways to build social allies without doing that much. 
a lot of times you will be surprised how little that you are doing, yet the other person is seeing it as this big deal. I recall there was this one time someone DM'd me on uh, the Armani Talks Twitter page, which you should follow, by the way, at Armani Talks. And he just DM'd me and he's like, I don't really know if this Toastmasters thing works. You know, he you, he was not a believer. I was like, you know, you get out what you put in it. And he asked, well, what did it do for you? So I told him a little bit of my story with Toastmasters, how I started off very shy. Uh, I hated public speaking. I um, didn't do well in my first speech, went back after plenty of months, and then slowly worked my way up from guest to member to recruitment chair to external vice president. And I just talked about that. And he was like, um, oh, okay, whoa, all right, well, it's good that it worked for you. A couple of months goes on by, and he basically just shoots me this huge DM talking about how Toastmasters changed his life. And the only reason that he ended up going was because of me. And now he is the president for his Toastmasters club. Um, I believe it's in Africa or some someplace out of the U.S. And he's giving me props. And he's like, Armani, I want you to come speak in my Toastmasters. And I'm thinking, what did I do to the, for this guy? I didn't do anything. I just told him what I did. But me telling him what I did inspired him. Because I guess when I was talking about how I messed up my first ever speech, how I choked, didn't say uh, anything, it motivated him or inspired him, better yet, because he was in a similar position in his life. A lot of people build a negative perception in regards to Toastmasters because their first one to five speeches were very sloppy. And they're like, well, this doesn't work. So when he saw that I went through the same struggle, but I still persevered regardless, he was like, all right, let me give this a chance. And then once he gave it a chance and he stuck with it long term, that's when he tied in that win to me. A lot of the times, I'm telling you, it works like this. You have no clue that you're helping someone out and you're helping them out. And then in the future, they go out of their way to give you credit. They're like, trust me, the only reason I learned public speaking is because of Armani Talks. I'm like, I don't know if that's even accurate myself, my dude. But if you want to give me praise like that, go on, give me some praise. Um, the opposite also holds true. You don't want to take too much credit for someone's um, success. Like every now and then I'll see someone that's dressed nice. I'll ask them some tips. Like, how'd you learn to dress like that? And in the future, I try to sharpen my dress game. And this person's like, you're only dressing like this because of me. I'm like, no, not really. But I mean, if you want to think that, you can. So just like some people are really quick to give you praise, a lot of other people are really quick to take credit. Uh, and you'll see this a lot if you're doing online business. Every now and then, someone will be like, hey, bro, um, re remember that one time I helped you out with X, Y, and Z? You're like, no, not really. He's like, well, I did help you out. Uh, can you write me a review? Um, okay, well, let me think about what you helped me out with in the first place. And if I can recall that, then I could write you a review. And then they try to tell you what they helped you out with. And you're like, what? Okay, whatever. I mean, you didn't really help me out in that regards, but I guess I'll write you that review. So you write that review, time goes on by, and the person's like, hey, man, um, can you write me another review about that one time I helped you? 
you're like, bro, you d- didn't even help me. I don't feel ethical writing you these reviews. And this is what happens. Some people will just keep coming to you, asking you to write them reviews just because you're their friend. This is one of the reasons why I say that reputation is very, very, very overrated in the information age. Because it's so easy to um, fake reviews in this era. I recall I used to uh, work on uh, Upwork and Fiverr to get some talent. And routinely, I'd be seeing these uh, people that were charging so cheap. And they had uh, amazing reviews. And I decided to work with them. And they gave such sloppy product. I thought, what the heck? How did you guys get that high of reviews in the first place? And then I found out that you could easily buy reviews on Fiverr and Upwork. So their reputation wasn't accurate. So this is one reason reputation is very overrated in the information age. In addition to that, I mean, think about it like this. A couple of years back, 2019, this is when people were hating on gurus. Uh, I believe it was CoffeeZilla and Spencer Cornelia that sparked this fake guru outrage movement. But if you were looking at content in 2016 to 2019, there were a lot of people that were giving uh, their wisdom out for free. And we're like, wow, these guys are amazing teachers. And just a couple of years later, the same guys are being labeled fake gurus. One example is Dan Locke. Dan Locke in 2017 was one of the fastest growing YouTube accounts. And many people were hyping him up. They're like, Man, he gives such great advice. But by 2019, when CoffeeZilla, Spencer Cornelia, uh, and these guys, uh, the exposed guys, were coming out, they were bashing the fake guru movement. And the fake guru movement needed a poster boy. Okay, Any movements need uh, that enemy. And that enemy soon became Dan Locke. Because if you look at Dan Locke, he seems like a very outlandish guy. He's an Asian guy that wears flashy suits, drives expensive cars, uh, greases his hair. So he just looked uh, like a fake guru poster boy. And just like that, these two individuals, CoffeeZilla, Spencer Cornelia, spent uh, the entire year destroying Dan Locke's reputation. He soon became known as the poster boy for fake guru. And many people will say, well, what CoffeeZilla and Spencer Cornelia did was right. I mean, they did provide evidence. And this is where I'm going to say, what evidence? Did you just um, interview the people that didn't like Danlock services? Or did you take the time to interview both sides of the parties? People that didn't like Danlock services plus the people that Danlock helped. Did you did you interview both parties? If not, you are simply a content creator, not a journalist. These guys, these exposed guys, they're a lot of them are scumbags uh, trying to masquerade as people that are good people. I'm just looking out for the public. No, you're not. A lot of these guys, and more specifically, early CoffeeZilla and Spencer Cornelia, these guys are scumbags that are more. Um, interested in growing their YouTube audience. And they saw that there was a large group of people that were uh, liking these gurus. So they wanted to create the the resistance, aka the fake guru movement. And 
you could find anyone like that. You could find anyone out there that um, you're like, man, this guy has a lot of traction. Let me zone in on this guy and let me destroy his life. And I will destroy his life by only interviewing the people that have bad things to stay, say about him. I'm going to interview this guy in depth. And then hopefully I could interview two more guys like that. I'm going to create really um, despicable thumbnails that vilifies this guy, makes him look evil. And then I'm going to share it to the mass audience. And as I share it to the mass audience, what's going to happen is that this person that's being loved by so many people will now attract an equal group of people that hate them. And as they um, are getting hated on, my audience is growing. My AdSense money is growing. My views are increasing. This is why I say reputation is overrated in the information age, because anyone can do that to you. Anyone can set the mission for the next year to paint you as the bad guy. And they'll take little clips of your life where a homeless guy asks you for money and you're like, sorry, I don't have any money. And then immediately right after you buy yourself uh, a Starbucks coffee, they'll, they'll clip that and be like, see, this guy has enough money for Starbucks, but not to feed the homeless. They'll get that narrative, then they'll uh, spread it out to the public. And then they'll say, I'm just looking out for the homeless people. No, you're not. You're only doing whatever the algorithm will tell you to do. And to me, that's despicable. Uh, I would say that I respect Danlock a lot more than um, goobers like CoffeeZilla, Spencer Cornelia, um, even though they have grown. I, I believe Spencer has, um, he got sued. And after getting sued, it humbled him and he understood. Um, nowadays, he tries to frame himself as a journalist, um, which I still don't believe. I, I believe he does work whatever the clicks will tell him to do. And it's uh, it's something that I think is very despicable when you try to frame yourself as a journalist. Do you know what a journalist is supposed to do? They're supposed to provide information to the public to make them self-governing. I read that. Uh, there's this really great uh, journalism textbook. I, I can't recall the name. I believe it's called Elements of Journalism. But I got really curious about the topic because whenever a certain... Uh, career choice, a certain group of people, a certain person becomes the punching bag. Rather than join in on the chorus of hate, you want to understand why this field, this person exists in the first place. And one group that gets a lot of hate nowadays are journalists. Uh, journalists are seen as these pompous individuals that don't contribute anything to society, while in reality, that could not be further from the truth. Journalists are needed in order to make people aware. That is all. Journalists are not needed for you to spew hatred that you have of the other person onto others. It's as though you need to take yourself out of the mix. You need to report the facts to the best of your ability, and then you um, you spread it to the uh, the public. I view journalism a lot like science, because here's the thing with journalism. You're not supposed to have bias. However, this is a contradictory statement because humans are inherently biased. We're biased because we don't have all the information uh, at our disposal at once, and we don't have the perfect judgment. You need both of these variables, all the information on the planet plus refined judgment in order not to be biased. And even then, it's like well, you, other people can still make the case that you're being biased. So it's impossible not to be biased.
Therefore, journalists need、uh, frameworks to reduce their likelihood of being biased, and it's very similar to the scientific method. Like, imagine if someone, a scientist,、uh, creates a theory, and they are only running experiments to prove this theory to be true. Is this a scientist? No,、uh, th- this is not a scientist. What if the evidence is proving that this theory is not true? And the scientist is like, well, let me、um, brush away this data. Let me create some more data that says that my theory is true. The scientist is biased. It has a lot of ego. So the scientist、um, is supposed to use the experiments to disprove the theory. And if the theory still stands, then and only then, it's a theory that should be more accepted by the public. So being a journalist and being a scientist. They're not that different from one another. You cannot just have a narrative that you superimpose in your mind from the very beginning, and you're like, "I'm going to find the people to、uh, validate that narrative." That's what a lot of these YouTubers do. These are content creators. You're a true journalist when you're like, "Let me. I don't really know what's going on, but this is the narrative I'm aware of. Let me see if this is accurate." Then you interview as many people as you can, aka sources. You probe, you dig, and then you see. Wait a minute. The narrative that I initially had was radically different from what the evidence is presenting me. Then you, the guy, should be willing to modify that narrative. But if you're not willing to modify that narrative and you're just set out to destroy someone's reputation, then you are a content creator, not a journalist.、You、gotta understand the difference. Journalism in itself,、um, even if you never、uh, plan to become a journalist, I highly recommend you study the field, because understanding journalism, just the basic aspects of it, will make you a better learner.、Um, every now and then, I'll、um, watch interviews of famous journalists just to see what they're about. And after watching five different interviews from five different journalists, I notice a lot of them are saying the same things. The first thing that all of them say is, "You got to be curious." Then the person interviewing them will be like,、uh, "Curious about what?" Then the journalist will say, "You just got to be curious,、uh, not about any particular subject, but about life. Just different things. You just want to be asking why. How do shirts get made? How does the microphone get made? Why do certain people hate each other? Why do certain people l- love each other?" You want to be as curious about different topics as possible. That's one thing that they all say. Then they say, "You gotta learn to、uh, write, because when you're writing, initially you're not going to recognize the voice that you're writing in. But the more that you write, the more that you hone your writing voice, which automatically makes you hone your speaking voice. Because what is journalism really?" You're pretty much just collecting information, making sense of that information. Then you're presenting that information to the public. If you cannot write properly, then you don't have the confidence in your voice to present the information to the public. So you need to write. Then they say you just gotta consume whatever, whether it be books, YouTube videos, past interviews. Just consume whatever, learn as much as you can.、Uh, knowledge is a lot like.、Um, Uh, finance it, it compounds with time, so you just gotta learn as much as you can. And journalism, hopefully, if you 
practice the right frameworks and you're not too um, tainted by bias and ego, this is a field that you can easily get better with in time. Because think about professional sports. Let's say football. If you, uh, if a football player comes to you and says, I will be a better football player at age 50 versus age 20, you're going to laugh at them. No, you're not. It's because your body is going to corrode. These people are in a physical sport. But stuff like podcasting, journalism, chess, uh, chess, not chess, chess, these are mental sports. And with mental sports, you can get better with time. But you got to make sure that your foundations are right from the very beginning. If you're taking shortcuts from the very beginning, then mental sports are not going to favor you. Instead, you are going to have a moment when one day multiple people are coming at you uh, sideways. They're just going to be like, man, you're not doing things the right way. You're a very unethical individual. For mental sports, you really need to factor in ethics. You can't cheat the system. You need to put in your reps. And a lot of the times, whenever it's a mental sport, something that we cannot see, we tend to undermine its importance. For example, if you're a knowledge worker, let's say you are someone who builds websites for a living. And let's say you go to a family reunion and your cousin is a plumber. Most people in the family reunion will understand that it's in poor taste uh, to make the plumber fix a plumbing issue within the family reunion. And if they are going to make uh, the uh, plumber fix something, they better pay the plumber. They know this. Why? It's because they could physically see the plumber working with the plunge and getting uh, their hands dirty. They could see that. But people in the family reunion, they're not going to think twice about asking you to make a website. They'll say, hey, man, um, I just started this new charity event. Uh, do you mind making me a website for the event real quick? And now you're in an awkward position. You're like, mm, I normally charge $700 per site, and that's the minimum cost. And this guy just wants me to do it for free, more specifically right now. And you don't want to be mean because this is one of your older relatives. It's your uncle. So you say, all right, I guess I'll do it. So you make him a quick website and he's like, you did this wrong, this wrong, this wrong. Please fix it. Now he's taking your kindness for granted and he's making you work. He's making you do the same thing that the plumber was doing, just in a completely different medium. One was physical work. The other is mental work. But your uncle All the uncle sees is you clicking a bunch of buttons and they do not take that seriously at all. They're just like, yeah, I mean, just clicking a bunch of buttons. What's he really doing? So people marginalize knowledge work a lot. And you know who marginalizes knowledge work the most? Knowledge workers. I was stunned when I saw this um, very big Twitter account one day write, uh, clicking buttons for a living is not a real job. And I thought, what did uh, what, what do you mean by that, my dude? Uh, so a bunch of people were lashing out at him. They're like, is that what you do? And he says, yeah, so I don't have a real job. I thought, what an idiotic thing to say. You are an author. You have a newsletter. You command influence on Twitter. And you're pretty much marginalizing your own work. Why? Because whenever we're thinking of work, we're thinking a little too much about moving a lot. 
And mind you, I used to do work like that. Uh, people that are close to me always roast me, but I used to work in physical jobs like Dunkin' Donuts, like cleaning toilets and shit, um, making donuts, uh, working in Subway, dealing with rude customers, getting big boxes, throwing it away. As someone who validates the physical work a lot, they'll be like, man, that is a guy that's putting in work. But me writing a book, they'll say, oh, well, that's nothing, man. I mean, he's just clicking a bunch of buttons. Writing a book is way harder than any physical jobs that I did. Why? Because writing a book, it requires concentration, creativity for a prolonged period of time. And guess what? There are no frameworks. Where with Subway, I don't know if you know this, uh, but most uh, of the Subway sandwich artists, they have a paper right in front of them that gives them the formulas for how to make a sub. So if it's a foot-long turkey sandwich, it gets eight slices versus a six-inch sub, it'll get four slices. So you're pretty much being told exactly what to do. There's structure. There's certainty. That's what most physical jobs are like. If physical jobs did not have certainty, then it would be chaos. You need protocols for physical jobs. But with knowledge work, it's not always like that. Sure, you'll learn some basic rules, but for the most part, you need judgment. You don't know exactly what to do when you're playing chess. You need judgment. So do not undermine the knowledge work that you're putting in. And one way to stop undermining it so much um, is to draw connections between the abstract and concrete. One advice that I say for people that are building a digital empire is to draw parallels from your digital empire to the real world. So there was one day that I was getting interviewed by this craftsman uh, podcast, and this gentleman uh, owns uh, a podcast that reaches a lot of other craftsmen that work with their hands. And he asked me, he said, you know, recently I was um, I was doing some sort of... Um, script writing for this podcast. And I just felt like I was doing a lot of um, work. And he was very, uh, he was finding it very difficult to express himself. So he asked me, he said, hmm, I can't quite put it into words, but do you see any parallels between the digital, digital world and the real world? Of course. And that's when I told him that whenever I am building my website, whenever I'm adding a blog, I'm technically adding a new room. Whenever I'm adding a YouTube video, I'm adding a new patio. Whenever I'm uh, adding a podcast, uh, I'm adding a new bathroom. Me, I'm building a digital mansion with every content piece that I add on. And when I said it like that, he could clearly uh, understand it. Because people 40 years old plus, they don't really understand the whole concept of digital work. But when you say that digital real estate is a lot like real real estate, suddenly it begins to click. And you, you start to get more meaning out of your work. Oh, wait a minute. Me recording this podcast right now is sort of like a new bowling alley for my digital mansion. And the more that you keep thinking like this, the more that you focus on the fundamentals of building a business, not the things that always go up and down, but the things that you have pure control over. 
And the only thing that you have pure control over is publishing. You're not a true creator until you have published your work. Within one of my books, it's called Lights, Camera, Action. Uh, this book is about teaching you how to become a better speaker in front of the camera. I talk about a concept known as the light zone and the dark zone. Most individuals that are terrified to speak in front of the camera are terrified because they think you have to immediately publish your work. But that's not the case. I make the argument that you should have a dark zone. This is the type of content that you create strictly for yourself. And then you have the light zone, the content that you publish. Have the dark zone moment before the light zone. Before I ever released a single video on the Armani Talks channel, I recall I was on my phone just creating talks out of the ether. Even this laptop, every now and then I'll check my video catalog and I recall videos from years ago where I'm just looking aimlessly in front of the computer thinking about, well, what do I say? And the recording light is on and I am forcing myself to say something. This is the dark zone. This is my time to learn what I am going to say. I'm using a space for me to hone my voice, understand how to articulate my ideas, play around with the tonality, and much more. And then a couple of weeks passes on by, and I thought, you know what? Screw this. I'm about to do something. So your boy drives over to this farm-like area. I'm thinking I'm in the middle of nowhere. And I began recording this episode. This was my first official video on the Armani Talks YouTube channel. Uh, prior to that, I recorded some of my old school Toastmaster speeches and posted it on the YouTube channel. But me at that farm, and you'll recognize it if you ever are bored and you want to go through my entire catalog, look at one of the earlier videos where I'm outdoors and I'm doing this. That was my first ever video where I made that, uh, that intention of saying, however this video turns out, it will be published. The light zone. You're not a true creator if you're just stuck in the dark zone. Because you could be in the dark zone and you could actually build this false bravado. Do you know how many videos I, uh, I recorded in private? 500. And how many did you publish? Well, I didn't publish anything yet. How about you get one of those dark videos and just make it public right now? And this is when a lot of individuals will say, well, no, I mean, well, what if someone sees it? What if someone leaves a mean comment? That's one of the best things that can happen to you. Because as soon as you get your first ever mean comment, you begin to think, wait a minute, this is what was bothering me this whole time? I don't care about you. I don't even know you. It's more embarrassing when someone that you know discovers your YouTube channel because and now they try to microanalyze you too much. They'll either try to get free services out of you or they'll say, oh, I know what that story was about that you were making your YouTube talk on. It was about me, wasn't it? Uh, no, not really. No, no, no. It was about me. I'm going to be um, uh, checking out your YouTube channel more, bud. So it's more annoying when people that you know discover your YouTube channel. But even then, you will be surprised. I recall in 2020, there was this one guy I knew who would 
always make fun of his close friends. And we were all in a group meet together, and he was so freaking mean. One of the people in the group meet, he had dreams of becoming a rapper. And this guy would just roast him all the time. Come on, man. Who wants to listen to a brown rapper? Your dream is dead from the very beginning. And he's just making fun of him nonstop. One day, this guy hits me up and says, Hey, Armani, um, I discovered your YouTube channel. I was like, dang, man. Now I know what's going to happen. He's going to post the link of my YouTube channel on GroupMe, and they're all going to make fun of me. And that's when this guy said, I didn't know you did this. This is very cool. This guy is telling me that? I thought he was setting me up to roast me. So I asked him what the catch was. That's when he told me that he's getting married and he has to give a speech and he wanted some advice. And he actually discovered my YouTube channel organically as he was looking up videos on how to structure a presentation. So I thought this guy was going to make fun of me But rather than make fun of me, he was hyping me up and he was asking me for advice. So a lot of the times when you think that someone is going to be making fun of you, they're not going to be making fun of you. And when they do make fun of you, it doesn't sting as much as you thought it would sting. In the beginning, it may, because you're not used to it. I mean, this whole concept of us putting ourselves out there and building individual media empires is a relatively new concept. That's one of the biggest differences between new media and traditional media. A traditional media, there are groups and groups of people all with their specified roles. Uh, CNN, MSNBC, New York Times. I mean, there's editors. There are people who write the script, uh, anchors who deliver the script. Everyone has their own unique roles. But in new media, you, the solo brand, You must learn how to do a little bit of everything. You need to understand how lighting works. You need to understand how the camera works. You need to understand how to write, how to deliver your content. And more importantly, you need to be able to deal with criticism as well. Uh, Because you are going to get criticism. A lot of criticism. I mean, uh, it's good too. Because sometimes when you get criticism, you are made aware of something that you never had a clue about. I recall for one of my first ever Armani Talks YouTube videos, one of the comments was, man, this guy doesn't blink at all. And I thought that was ridiculous. What do you mean, man? This is an eight-minute video. Are you telling me you didn't see a single time when I blinked? So I watched the entire video back, and this guy was right. For eight minutes, I did not blink once. And this guy just gave me this perspective that I was needing. Because I kept looking at that video and I'm like, something about it seems off. I don't quite know what it is, but something just feels off. And when I realized that I didn't blink at all and I was just looking like this at the camera, just with my eyes open, that's when I discovered what was off. So this guy who delivered his comment in a very snarky way helped me out in the long run. A lot of these guys that dislike you or leave mean comments they don't really dislike you. They're just trying to channel you to become better. Then there are people that dislike you. Their main goal is to make you look silly. And even for this group of people, I believe you can view it as a win-win situation. At times, they're going to give you something that can help you. And other times, you could use this as a moment to build a thicker skin. 
when you build that thick skin, that's when you become more creative. I have this rule. Uh, the less you care, the more creative that you become. And whenever you're capable of dealing with these mean comments, this is how I view the smart getting smarter, the creative becoming more creative. Because you become resilient. The Armani Talks brand covers a bunch of different soft skills. And two very important ones are emotional intelligence and creativity. At first glance, people may think that these two fields are different. But in reality, they're not. They influence one another. The more chaotic emotions that you have, you could either just spill it out to the world by becoming angry for no reason, drinking a lot of alcohol, smoking a lot of weed, or you can hold onto those emotions. You allow your mind uh, to become familiar with the emotions from multiple angles. And when you allow your mind to do something like that, the mind becomes morphed in a completely different way. And this is when you get stunning ideas that you never got before. You're capable of articulating concepts that others never even thought of before, but they dealt with. And this is when you're seeing that these raw, chaotic emotions are not your enemy. It's your fuel to become a greater artist. So emotional intelligence and creativity go hand in hand. And a cheat code to help yourself be more creative is by reading the mean comments. Every now and then screenshotting the mean comments, being like, all right, I'm going to check out some of these mean comments whenever I'm feeling a little too cocky. When you're feeling too cocky, when everything is too peaceful, that is not good for an artist. That's very bad. Because an artist thrives when there's chaos. Not so much chaos to a point where it makes them cry or stress out. But enough uh, chaos that unbalances them a little bit. Because when you're unbalanced, now you're forced to balance. Uh, in my video, uh, Thrive in Chaos, it's on my YouTube channel, I was actually talking about how the chair that I sit on whenever I'm recording these videos, I intentionally took off the screw on one side. So it's actually, if I just rest, it'll just tilt me this way. So I have to force myself to balance. Now an outsider may be like, what the heck? Why would you do something like that? It's because I am now forced to focus on the micro body language moves. And when I focus on the micro body language moves, nothing can shake me, right? So this concept of thriving in chaos, it's not just an emotional concept where you're dealing with mean comments, hate, dark emotions. It's also the physical aspect. If you're terrified to give a speech, well, guess what? During practice session, you better do some push-ups, then you deliver your speech. Why? It's because you're throwing your body off balance. Your body thinks, wait a minute, you just did 20 push-ups. You're huffing and puffing away. How the heck are you going to give a speech? Figure it out. You are being forced to breathe through the rapid heartbeat. And the more that you could do this in practice session, as you're walking up on stage on actual speech day, your heart is beating through the roof, you're not rattled. You're like, wait a minute, I just did this multiple times during practice session. I know how to breathe through it now. I realize that the rapid heartbeat is not stopping me. It's only a fuel that is meant to encourage me. 
So I am going to thrive in chaos in this moment, and I'm going to keep on pushing forward. So, if you, uh, so I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Uh, there were a lot of unique topics that we discussed. And if you want more insights like this into a variety of topics within communication skills, such as public speaking, storytelling, social skills, emotional intelligence, and much more, you definitely want to check out the Armani Talks free daily newsletter. Every single day at 7 p.m. EST, I'm dropping insights on so many different soft skills. And I tell you anecdotes, stories that help you turn ambiguous concepts into relatable information that can be applied uh, to your nervous system, which influences your behavior. What are you waiting for? ArmaniTalks.com slash newsletter. Sign up today and join the tribe. Uh, Thank you very much for joining me. If you're watching from YouTube, drop that like for me. Uh, Stay subscribed. If you're listening from podcast, be sure to drop your boy review. And I will catch you next time.